From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained, the Pump Jack Data Works big interview. You'll realize that Grant is not with us today, and as always, never ask too many questions. Uh, but uh, who is with us is the captain, who, uh, for those who can see him, um, will realize that he's looking incredibly healthy. He's obviously been in sunny climes. And um, he's great to be back on the show. Welcome, Giles. How are you? It is so nice to be back on the, I don't know if you call podcasts airways, but you take my point. Yeah, I've been in Greece. I've been swimming, scaring the locals. They thought that large whales had arrived in Corfu as I was splashing around. And yeah, <laughs> I'm um, bronze, full of feta cheese, halloumi, lamb and retzina. So whatever happens Good. in the next hour could be lethal. Good. And have you managed to keep in touch with the, the sporting world while you've been in Greece or, or did you just check out completely? Do you know, I really did check out, actually. I kept an eye on the test match, the England test match against um, the Indians during India. the time I was away, just because it's my greatest passion, probably just test match cricket. Um, so I kept that on in the in the background. But other than that, no, I have no idea what's going on. So thank God for you. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you missed a wonderful Solheim Cup. Um, yeah. the, the European women, uh, just superb, wonderful event. Uh, so that, that, that was that was exciting. We've had uh, the return of international football and uh, everything is getting back. Crowds are back. I see no social distancing. I see no uh, masks. Uh, so I think we're coming out of this for right or for wrong. Don't know what the, 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 the politically correct thing to say these days is about um, what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, some of our people in, in Australia are getting into a different uh, situation, but uh, the world seems to be coming back and sport is all the better for it. Do you know, I so agree. And I, I did catch a, a glimpse of the Oval Test match, the last one where uh, England were eventually beaten up by the Indians. And just to see the Oval full, and to yeah. see quality sport being played in front of a lot of people who are delighted to be there. It's exciting. It's just a shame the traffic. I don't know about Como, but you can't move in London anymore. It's like it's never yeah. happened. But there we Everybody's go. Everybody's back. Everybody's back out. They're wanting to do things. They're wanting to spend money. They're wanting to have a good time. And today we've got somebody that can help us understand that a little bit better. I'm going to let you introduce our guest in a second, Giles. But we mentioned Australia and he can take us into what's happening there. And um, I think the best thing is that I just let you set the context for what is a very, very special guest. Well, you're right. And September always feels like the start of a new school year. And once we're in the middle of our season, this is a sort of, we've had our little break, you've done some live show. And who better than to get a sporting legend to sort of welcome us into, into September Michael Liner, um, the younger listeners may not know who he is, but they should if they don't. He is, I yes. think, something something of a, a true Australian legend, both for rugby union, but actually broader than that within the world of sport. 
He was a member of the 1984 Grand Slam Wallabies team that came over to the United Kingdom and Ireland, which had never really been done before. The Wallabies were, had never been gr- really produced great sides, and they right. they, they de- decimated everybody. And young Michael, who was played in the centre at that point with the great Mark Eller, yep. announced himself on the world stage. And then he seemed to play forever. He was a the deputy um, captain for the successful 1991 World Cup side and then retired from international rugby in 95 and then carried on playing as one of the first real mercenaries for Saracens and took them to a championship win um, in about 98 or so. And they won the, the, the cup final as well. He's been, he has maybe 14 or 15 years, he was one of the most recognisable rugby, international rugby players around. He was. And, and then being Michael Liner, he, um, he sort of carried on. He decided he was going to be a successful businessman, which he's become working as managing director for, for Dow Jones Corporate. But also, if that wasn't enough, he's also a father to two rising stars, Louis and Tom Liner. One who's playing for the Harlequins, who played in the fantastic cup final not that long ago in May. And Tom, who's playing his trade back in his father's old patch in, in Queensland. So not only has he done it on the field, he's done it off the field. And in 1996, really as recognition, he was uh, made a member of the Order of Australia and then inducted into the Australian Hall of Fame in '99. And then the International Rugby Hall of Fame in 2001. And then rather hilariously, it took another 10 years for the Australians to put them into his (laughs) own Hall of Fame. But I think it's fair to say that of all the many guests we've had on the show, within his world, Michael Liner has done it all. And what a brilliant guest to have as we get into September 21. Yeah, uh, you missed out the Italian experience, which is incredibly interesting for me. If I'm not mistaken, he played in that beautiful city of uh, Treviso, with Benetton Treviso rugby team. And um, like most of us do, um, I think he may end up ended up with an Italian woman. Is that not the case, Charles? It is absolutely the case. And I thought you maybe want to ask questions about that as well. You could compare notes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I do remember what you were saying that um, Australian rugby was not as uh, big uh, in, in our generation as certainly cricket was and tennis players, but he changed that. I remember very much that that yellow shirt uh, was him uh, and maybe Campisi as well, but I I remember that blonde lad in the middle and um, he's had such a wonderful career from bursting onto the stage, as you say, in those days. So so let's get him in, shall we? Brilliant. Let's do that. Michael Liner, a very, very warm welcome to the Pump Jack Daytwerts big interview. It's good to see your face. Yeah, you too, Giles. Thank you. It's good to be talking to you again, albeit uh, from a distance. Well, a real distance, because usually you and I would be in southwest London, probably having a, a, a nice, decent glass of something red or maybe white. But <laughs> I think you're in Brisbane and Roger's in Como and I'm in uh, Wandsworth. Nice to see you, Michael. Right? So, um, nice to see you, Roger. <laughs> Very jealous of you being in Como as well. <laughs> yes, well, we have that. that, that Treviso is um, a beautiful city as well. And, um, you know, when I was reading up, preparing for this, uh, I remembered the, you know, the times I'd spent in Treviso and, and it's a very underrated Italian city. Beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah, no, it is, Roger. And um, yeah, we like to keep it that way. So we don't get too many uh, <laughs> tourists there. But actually, it'd be nice after the whole, 
you know, pandemic and lockdown and all the problems that Italy had been going through, I think tourists would be very welcome, particularly down the road in Venice and places like that. Well, you'll like this story, Michael. I've only once been to Treviso, well, twice actually, once with the Scotland rugby team when I think I first met you a million years ago. But I'm a good mate of your mate, uh, Sir John Kerwin, who is also uh, a man of Treviso. And I went to uh, stay with him and I got very lost driving from Venice Airport (laughs) to Treviso. I couldn't find his house. (laughs) And I was driving round and round. It was pre-sat-nav until eventually I saw a pair of rugby posts in a garden. And I realised um, it was either your house, it was either your house or his. And um, yeah, yeah, it was very good. Very Giles, good. you may, you may not know this. You may not know this. Um, Treviso is the founding town of Tiramisu. That's where it was mm. invented. And there's one particular restaurant that claims ownership of this recipe. Uh, and so mm. if anybody that does go to Treviso, you can actually find the place that they developed the first tiramisu suite, if anybody's interested. Wow, I'm going back. Anyway, enough of this, <laughs> enough of this, Tosh. We've got you in Australia, Michael. And <laughs> the first thing, as you know, this podcast of, of Are You Not Entertained, we, we try and exploring what's going on in the in the world of sport and and for us fascinating mm. as it will be to talk to you about your thoughts about where rugby union's going where what it's like to be a dad of two professional rugby yeah. players and there's so much we can talk about but many would say that australia is one of the great sporting nations and clearly it has been mm. and you're all passionate about sport and yet the last 18 months the world has shut down but nowhere has shut down perhaps more than australia and New Zealand, and therefore the sporting world presumably has also ground to a halt. And you travelling in, I know, spending time in Brisbane for the next few weeks. What are your observations? What, what What's going on in Oz and, and what's it like? It's quite interesting, Giles. I, 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 it's a good question because I guess you go back, um, gosh, what maybe a year ago and New Zealand and Australia were real you know, we were all jealous of New, New Zealand and Australia because they closed their borders. And yes, they are islands and they are remote, but they were very, very quick to close their borders to all outsiders. And therefore, um, they were relatively COVID-free uh, most of last year. So we were all very jealous as we were locked down in, in, in various parts of the world, London, etc. And, um, um, and, you know, it was pretty good. <laughs> Life was pretty good in Australia. But, and, and, you know, I think we in the UK were sort of relatively slow and um, unfortunately to close down our borders and that cost, you know, things dearly, cost people dearly. And we saw the way out of that was to accelerate uh, the vaccination program. Um, and that's being, you know, touch would have been success so far. And it's almost the opposite to what Australia did, for example. They locked down very quickly almost had zero, you know, very much um, low occurrence of the, uh, the virus here. And therefore, there was no real urgency around a vaccination program. And the virus was never going to stay away. It was going to get to Australia somehow. And it's only now that they're realising the importance of vaccination. So they're trying to catch up. So it's actually two very different models. Um, and... Um, you know, Australia's going through what we probably went through last year. And uh, the sporting landscape, however, is, is is an interesting one because you may recall last year when there was no sport going on at all, no live sport at all. And the first sport, professional sport that came out was uh, rugby league in Australia. I remember mm-hmm. sitting down with at home watching it and uh, 
And that's funnily enough here in Australia, given our love of sport, um, sports have actually continued. Um, it's it's really interesting at the moment. Most of the AFL, it's the Aussie rules, the, the, the rugby league, the Australian rugby league competition and rugby union um, have all reclaimed and women's cricket and all sorts of things have relocated into their bubbles up here in Queensland. And they're playing all the games here in Queensland. So it's finals time and I, I up here in Queensland and, you know, there was an AFL semi-final down the road at the Gabba. There was uh, rugby league's last round was being held in various parts of Queensland, you know, Townsville and uh, uh, Redcliffe and Brisbane and Suncorp Stadium. So sports sort of going on um, and people are going to watch that here in Queensland uh, and it's on TV. So, but there's also a bit of controversy around that, you know, sports people being allowed to come into the state and isolating and being in bubbles, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, the general public not being allowed. So that's causing controversy and, you know, it's almost a them and us sort of scenario. But sport has continued here in Australia to a, to a, a degree. And uh, so you, you're right about love of sport. You know, we must get our sport on TV and we must be able to go and watch sport. It's, it's, a, it's almost like it's compulsory. Michael, you, you mentioned in there uh, being far away remote. Uh, one one of the themes I'd, I would love your opinion on, as we've talked in the last two or three years, not just about rugby, but especially about rugby, is the isolation or the marginalisation of Southern Hemisphere. How do you as an Australian think this is all going to play out? Do you think it's a major competitive disadvantage for Australia and New Zealand? Or, or do you think the world, once it gets past this, will get back to normal and northern, southern, western, eastern, all, won't really matter? Um, it's an interesting question because I, I, let's take rugby, for example. I mean, historically, rugby has been divided between, you know, north and south hemispheres. Yeah. And I've always thought that that's quite unusual and probably not correct. We should be divided into more time zones. Um, so, say, Africa and uh, Europe and um you know, Australia, New Zealand, possibly the islands, Pacific Islands, and up into Asia, and then you have the, you know, South and North America, that sort of side. And that sort of makes sense from a time zone point of view, viewing point of view and travel point of view. The Southern Hemisphere has had the Super Rugby Tournament and the Rugby Championship, which involves um, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and, and Argentina. And that just hasn't really worked in terms of time zones and yeah. TV rights, you know, and uh, TV, and but also from a player welfare point of view, and you play a game against New Zealand here in Brisbane, you jump on a plane and travel, you know, 24 hours with all the time zone differences, et cetera, to go and play South Africa in Cape Town the week later. It just doesn't, it's not a good thing for the body to do that. And uh, so I think that's changing gradually. Um, and, you know, the isolation, and particularly of New Zealand, you know, New Zealand are the, you know, South Africa are the champions, but New Zealand's one of the great rugby nations, as we know, of the world. And But their, you know, their, their um, position in, the, in, in geography is is such that Australia's the closest nation. We we unfortunately play New Zealand more than anybody else, so it's, it's quite tough for us every week to be beaten by New Zealand. I hope that changes soon. But they're sort of um, bound by their geographical position, as are Argentina, for example, as well, you know, that... They're, they're where they are. And so, but I hope that we get some back to some sort of normalcy, you know, not for only just from a sporting point of view, but from also from a business point of view and just a general 
life point of view. But I, I think this is an opportunity actually for rugby to realign itself into that more vertical as opposed to the horizontal division. And Michael, you were one of the first, I, I said this in the intro that we're, we're describing your, your glittering career of uh, both playing and, and post. You were one of the first rugby, as rugby went professional in 95, you came over to Saracens after your retirement from, from Australia. And so you saw the you saw the, this advent of, of professionalism in the game. Now as a father of two, uh, of Louis and Tom, you're getting them settled, one playing for Harlequins, what, the other playing for, for Queensland. You, when you then now look at the business um, landscape of, of rugby union, what's the advice you're giving a young young boys who want to ply their trade as young professionals who are Australian in terms of their you, and they presumably they have Br- English or British and Italian eligibility mm. as well. Do you encourage them to be men of of international background to then make the best choices for them? Or is it much more a nationalistic thing, which would have been for you when you were growing up? How does it all work now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, I, I sometimes battle myself to understand, you know, because I remember um, a couple of years ago, we were watching um, the, the World Under-20 Championships rugby from Argentina. And England were playing Australia. And I think it was a semi or something like that, maybe a third and fourth playoff, something like that anyway. And Lewis, our eldest boy, had actually played with a couple of of the players that were playing for England, um, both at, for Harlequins and the England sort of underage teams that he'd come through. So he knew them. You know, he knew quite of them, quite a few of them pretty well. And they sort of, you know, friends. Um, and during the game, you know, he's sort of going, oh, we can do this, we can do this. And I sort of turned to him and said, by we, who do you mean? Do you mean? And he said, Dad, Australia, of course. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And there was no sort of hesitancy in his answer. And he thought it was quite a strange question from me. But I, I you know, and I said, but you're cheering against your mates. He said, yeah, but they're English. And I went, oh. So it was uh, there. It's really interesting. I'm no, I've never sort of tried to influence them in any way in that regard. But for some reason, they've always considered them. So they were born, the two eldest, Tom and Nick, uh, Tom and Lewis, were born in Italy, actually, but have lived most of the vast majority of their life in England. In fact, got quite an English accent, all that sort of thing. But when it comes to sport, um, you know, it's sort of Australia and Italy first. And it's quite interesting when Italy play England, say, at Twickenham, you know, the chances of Italy winning that game over the last few years hasn't been great, yet they'll support, they'll support Italy. Um, because that's what they feel. And um, I, I think that's quite nice. But, you know, both my wife, Isabella, and I have never really sort of tried to, you know, you must do this, you must, do, you know, it's, it's, it's far from that. And, and the only thing I, I, I look at when they're growing up, you know, I, um, Isabella and I were very much of the opinion that, look, we, our job we, as parents we saw as to introduce in our kids to as many different things as possible, whether that be... Uh, football or cricket or swimming or tennis or debating or acting or playing a guitar, you know, um, or probably hopefully doing some schoolwork at some stage and different <laughs> subjects, but, you know, and, and let them decide what they want to do. And funnily enough that, you know, they did graduate to rugby and they were all pretty good at that, but they were good at other things as well. And uh, um, I don't know, it, it, it was up to them. And, and at one stage, Tom, um, was preferring football and so he said no I'm not going to play 
under, I think it was under 10s or something like that. I'd rather play football. Um, I said, that's fine. That's okay. So we did that for a while and then he went back to rugby because a lot of his mates were playing there from school, etc. So, you know, it's, it's that's what we see. And, and all I say now with them is, um, you know, just concentrate on what you're doing and, and before every game, I just say, just enjoy it. You know, and I might say I'm trite, but if you're not enjoying it, well, what's the point of doing it, whether you get paid or as an amateur or as an under-14 player? I mean, it's you've got to enjoy what you're doing. And they tend to – they seem to be enjoying it. They're doing well. Um, um, but, you know, that's and, – and and the question around international, I, I, you know, it's not up to Lewis or Tom to say, you know, I'm Australian. I'm gonna I'm gonna play for Australia. That's what I want to do. It's not up to them to declare what they're going to do. They've got to be invited to to play that. And at the moment, none of them have been invited um, to play for a country, whether that be Italy, Australia, or England. And as Lewis keeps saying, um, I'm just concentrating on trying to get into the Harlequins team and do the best I can for that team. And then, you know, whatever happens after that will happen. Um, and then that's when you have to make a decision. Um, once you get invited, it's not up to them to say, you know, I want to play for, you know, I want to be a, you know, rugby player for Australia. Tom has actually come out and said that this week. He said, I've always dreamed of playing for Australia. So, um, but he's a long way from that. Um, you know, it was like a lot of kids, you know, we dream, I wanted to play cricket for Australia. Oh, that was what I dreamt of. And, um, you know, it didn't happen, but it was a dream. Um uh, so, you know, I, I think they're reasonably healthy and they're, in terms of the way they have grown up and, and being exposed to a whole lot of different experiences. And that's as parents what we've, I, I see what we've got to provide for them and support them in whatever they want to do. Michael, here, here's the follow on for that. I think somebody like yourself is, is in a unique position to tell us and the, the people that listen uh, a perspective on various things. You know, so, so you're a parent as a, an international athlete of your children also being international athletes. You're also a senior business person uh, who has got responsibilities and manages teams. And when you were captain of Australia, you were managing what I like to call the maverick, the maverick talents. Could you, <laughs> like, like Campisi and things like that. Tell me a little bit, uh, you can start from wherever you want, as a father, as a business person uh, or, or as a captain of a team, how the hell do you get the best out of whether it's your sons, uh, the maverick talent or, or, or teammates? That's so fascinating for me. And I think you're uniquely positioned to give us an insight. Yeah, it's um, I get asked that a lot. And uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And often I say, you know, one of the best sayings I, I sort of have from a sporting sort of um, world. Um, and I always said it because being a, you know, being in a team sport like rugby um, and being a goal kicker, it's, it's quite a unique position because rugby is very much dependent on those people around you. You know, I, yeah. as a fly half, I, you know, I didn't want to go and scrummage and, you know, do that. And that's how it was dependent on them doing a really good job. So they provide me some good ball. And then, you know, we have our wingers like Campo and that sort of thing out there who are brilliant finishers and much faster and much better evasive skills than I ever had. So, and I was just sort of sitting in the middle doing all that, but we rely on people around us so much to perform as a team. So rugby's great in that regard. And that's a great thing 
in business every day. You know, we all try and work together to achieve a common goal, whether that be on the scoreboard of rugby or on the scoreboard of profit and loss for business. Um, and, and, but also in rugby, being a goal kicker, that was a very individual act and quite unique as well. So you'd go from this real sort of very, you know, very sort of concentrated team sport relying on everyone to actually you're on your own, out on your own, while the team stands back and watches you do this. It, it was it's quite a unique situation. And one of the things I, I loved from rugby that I sort of took away from that and used quite a lot um, is that, you know, being a goal kicker as well, you know, um, I didn't really care in our team, whatever team that was, whether that be club or state or national, um, um, who scored the points, as long as it was one of us. And I use that a lot at work as well because we have, you know, large sales teams, et cetera, and I, you know, I really try and get them working together. And I'm saying, well, you know, as long as, as, long as it's one of us, I don't really care who it is, but as long as it's one of us that does the job or does the sale or, or you know, that's, that's really, that's, because at the end of the day, it's the company we're working for that's, that benefits from that. And uh, you often see a lot of, you know, people sort of grabbing opportunities, whether that be on the sports field and saying, that's mine, I'm going to take credit for that and I'm not going to give any credit to anybody else. And you see a lot of that at work. And it often comes down at work to, to financial reward. Mm. So you've got to, as a manager, look at how you reward people and if, if that's fair or for efforts put in. And, and as a team, you reward the team, you reward the individual. But overall, you know, let's all work together to make sure that, you know, the company and, and the, the team and the business that we're in um, achieves the goals that we're setting out to do. Let me ask, um, connected to that, you know, we had uh, Louis Gavon uh, before you and he now is the owner of Baritz and mm. um, he, he commented on, uh, him putting his team together, his organisation together, actually, um, the famous uh, all black, no dickheads policy. Um, we as parents have always seen, you know, our kids uh, maybe have been, you know, very well behaved. Uh, they, they always turn up on time, uh, maybe not as talented. And then come Saturday or Sunday, the kind of like talented kid that maybe isn't as, as, as dedicated gets picked before. Um, mm. how, how, how do you feel about all that? Do, do, how yeah. much space do we need to give to the maverick that maybe doesn't give the best example but can, can make the difference on a Saturday on the field? Yeah, that's um, and you see that in business as well. You have the, yeah. the brilliant salesperson who's very, um, you know, wraps his round, arm around and is not a great team person, but boy, he helps the, the bottom line for the business. So um, often I find that you know, you have this br brilliant sort of maverick person. Um, it's actually to try and start giving them some responsibility other than themselves and, um, you know, try and put them into mentor positions. And, you know, I, I know I, it's sort of I've done it in sport where, you know, you'd say to somebody, oh, look, you know, such and such, the young kids that have just come into the, into the team, you know, they really look up to you. Why don't you, you know... Um, go and spend some time with them and, you know, show them the ropes and help them through all this. Oh, really? Okay. So actually get them thinking about doing something else for others and putting that responsibility on them. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work because often you get the young person coming back. Can you, can you tell, can you tell that person to go away? He's annoying me or something like that. But, you know, I think, I think that's a lot of, you know, starting to get people think, you know, you, you pay them a compliment by saying, 
you know, these people look up to you and really admire what you've done and what you do. Um, so you, you know, you're paying the compliment, but then also give them a, a little task that takes them away from their sort of thinking about what they've got, you know, just them, and then sort of start contributing to the team in a, in a, in a way. And they're not, they don't, sometimes don't even realize that that's what you're doing. It, um, it's, it's interesting you say that, Michael. I heard a, uh, an interview with Virat Kohli, the Indian captain, just after they mm. massacred England on the, on the final day yes. yesterday. And what you've said, and, and that kind of masterclass of leadership that he gave over that test match, which was that he's stepping back, having been one of the great test match players of obviously of recent mm. years. He genuinely, and I think, you know, the man is, you know, to be a test match batsman, you've got to have a fair modicum of selfishness. He's playing for that team, or he's getting the team. It's it's, it's the co collective effort that he's looking for. And what he was talking about in the interview mm. was a fascinating insight into senior leadership, which I guess Michael Brearley did with Ian Botham all those mm. years ago, 40 years ago, which is yep. um, you've got someone with immense talent, God-given talent that you can't really harness, but you can try and channel. Mm. And I think for all the great yes. teams, and, and rugby union is no different, it's the ultimate team game. But my goodness, you want, in your world, Campesi, you, you didn't want to, yep. you didn't want to tether him because his genius was being untethered, presumably. And it's, yeah. it's a fascinating, I, I think the, the question is, is a great one because I often yes. think in businesses that um, having worked for a large corporation and now working for another large corporation is that the, the need for team, very often it's a real advantage having played any form of team sport as a kid at any level, it doesn't matter, but just to have understood the, the nuance of team sport and mm. how you have to go along and play for their team is a massive advantage in business, I think. Oh, I, I agree. And, you know, there's also, the, you know, apart from the maverick sort of brilliant, you know, one out sort of individual, there's also uh, issues around sort of managing upwards as well, where, you know, people yes. behave differently when they're around coaches or managing directors and things like that. And the rest of the team can see that. And so the way around that is to try and, well, you know, you've got to actually talk to the person and say, look, we can see how you're behaving. And, you know, while we all want to get approval from above, but it's also important to get approval from your peers as well. And, you know, um, <laughs> and so I, 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 I really struggle with people that are act, act differently depending on who's in the room. Um, and that's something from a team as well. And that that's all about creating openness and honesty and, you know, being able to talk to people above you, but also at the same level and people below you and bringing them all along for the same ride. But, I, I, you know, it's, um, it's really quite interesting. And, we, Roger, you mentioned about um, young kids and teens and, you know, and parents on the sideline and all that sort of thing. I've been through that, <laughs> as we yeah. all have, and I've been through yeah. it quite a few times but one of the proudest moments I sort of saw um, was actually came from Tom he was down at Richmond Rugby Club and you know he's about he must have been the under 10s or something like that and he came to me and he was getting picked in the A's and you could see he was a talented kid but he was pretty shy and you know not outgoing um, apart, which is a direct contrast to his older brother who was you could see once again he was very talented but he was much more outgoing and you know there you could see he was there um and tom came to me and said dad i you know i don't think i'm good enough for the a team wow. um and you know would you mind you know could I, I think i'd be better off in the b team so i rang the coach and just said look you know um tom's just 
said to me that he's not comfortable in the A team. You know, can you put him in the B team next week? And this guy, Jim, said, he said, God, I wish all the parents were like you. They're normally ringing me to say little Johnny in the C team deserves to be captain of the A's, you know. Um, so, and then the following week, Tom, I, I came home and said, yeah, Jim's picked you in the, in the B team and you're captain and we've got a tournament down in, I think it was down in, oh, gosh, um, oh, just down in Surrey there somewhere. And um, Anyway, they, he was so much more at home and more confident and happy and they won the wow. tournament you know, and he got a little trophy with all the other guys and I've still got the photo and I thought that's what sport's about. You know, he was so much happier and, and you know, rather than a parent pushing him, no, you're good enough to be in the A's. It was about the happiness of your child. He wants to play wow. in the B's because, you know, that's where he feels more comfortable. And um, I, I thought that was a really – but it's also from a father-son relationship that he was – you know, obviously he knew who I was and he, you know, he wasn't, he didn't feel like he was letting me down or, or anything That's like that. Fantastic. He just, um, and also when he came to me and said, dad, I'd, I'd prefer to play football for, you know, absolutely, mate. You know, that, I'll take you. Um, he said, you're not disappointed, are you? And I said, not at all. Not at all. There's more, most, <laughs> I wish you'd play tennis and golf when nobody's trying to kick you or tackle you. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, uh, just just similarly on there, um, I saw again uh, prepping this. I, I saw you made a tweet about Charlie Watts uh, of the Rolling Stones. It, it, it's almost in the same area, is it not? A little bit that um, it was lovely to see him getting the credit as absolutely the glue of that of that group, uh, and, and and drummers often understated and not um, in the front line. But you know, it was great to see so much comment about how he really was. The, the heart and soul of that group. And, and I saw you like uh, tweeting that and I thought that all kind of makes sense a little bit. Yeah, he was, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of the band and uh, they're all about the same age as me. So, <laughs> um, but now, and, and that's also, you know, you could see that, you know, they were the, the big characters um, out the front. And, but you've got this person behind and, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, that's like a rugby front rower. Without them, you know, you can't do the fancy camper or the fancy liner or the fancy Far Jones sort of thing um, or Horan or whatever it might be without those props. But they, they don't, you know, you know, they never get the interviews. They don't get that. They don't get the kudos. But exactly. The, the team knows, you know, Jagger and Richards, they knew. They knew. They knew. <laughs> they knew yeah. Without him, you know, because that's what Keith always said, wasn't he? You know, when he broke and said he formed his own band or, and he said, no, I'm, are you, they said, are you nervous about not, you know, performing with Mick? And he said, no, not at all. It's Charlie I'm worried about missing out on. <laughs> yeah, I love so, that. Absolutely yeah. love that. Michael, you, um, your, your, your career is, is very well documented. You, you, you were, well, you can't have been very much older than either of your sons when you were part of that 84 um, mm. Wallabies Grand Slam side, which not just announced Wallabies as a, as a sort of global force in rugby, I think, but also mm. announced a young Michael Liner um, to the world. And then you never seem to get off our television screens. You were always there <laughs> looking fairly unflappable, looking unflappable and just slotting over points and irritating mm. the Scots, the Welsh, the Irish and everybody else. Um, and then you won a World Cup, amazing, at Twickenham and, and all of that. And and then mm. this amazing career, you're playing in Italy, then you play in Saracens and sort of herald mm. the start of the new rugby. And then 
it felt, you know, they used to say that Rob Andrew, Rob Andrew was golden balls, but you wouldn't be far behind, that your life had seemed very, you'd been sort of mm. fated all the way. And then in 2012, you, you had your own Everest with, with, with your stroke. T- mm. Tell us a little bit, I know it's been well written about, but it's such an extraordinary story about what happened and how you rebuilt yourself. And d- if you could share with us, mm. I, I would, I think yeah. people would be fascinated to hear about it. Yeah, I think, um, you, you know, you, it's quite interesting, isn't it, you know, that you have this life, you know, being a wonderful life bestowed on you and it just has this habit of, you know, evening things up. You know, you start to believe in God after that or some sort of God, you know, that he's just balancing <laughs> things out, you know. Um, but, yes, you're right. And it's literally I can see where the stroke happened over there in the city here at Brisbane. And um, actually it's quite funny you should mention it because tomorrow evening um, well, um, back in 2012 I was only here for a few days and I'd flown from London to Singapore to do a um, I'll try and make this as quick as possible because it is a long don't, story but don't, I, don't, <laughs> and um, I flown from London to Singapore via um, Dubai I had a stopover in Dubai and it was all about a, a charity dinner charity dinner and uh, I, I got um, I missed the only time I've ever missed a flight was I fell asleep in the lounge at Dubai and I woke to hear my name being called over the loudspeaker, you know, and cause that's, they, they knew where I was. So I ran and everybody, anybody that's been to Dubai airport, there's, it's quite a long way from lounge to the gate down the way. And I arrived there and the gate, the, the door was still open, but they said, no, we've just ordered your bags off. And my next flight was in, I think it was about 15 hours time and I had oh. to buy a ticket. And anyway, so I got there. I got there to Singapore at six in the morning or whatever it was, and they or eight in the morning. They took me straight to golf, which you know doesn't. It, you know, it's a lovely. This is a lovely trip, by the way. There's no hardship, but played a bit of golf in like the 38 degree, 100 percent humidity. Had a few beers afterwards. Went to the hotel, checked in, then went and did a an 800 person charity dinner that I spoke at, and that all went pretty well and all that sort of thing. And then I went up to my room, and one of the things, I, you know, what. It, there was it was a charity so there was no fear or anything like that but it was sponsored by an airline and one of the attractions that brought me apart from the charity was that they said well you know why don't you go down to uh brisbane um to say you know and i said that'd be yeah. a good idea thank you very much so the next day i was due to travel to brisbane but i didn't realize that when you miss a flight your whole the rest of your flight gets cancelled so i had to book through and so it was all very stressful got to brisbane um Dad picked me up and we went and played golf with a couple of mates of mine and um, once again. And then that evening, I at about 6 o'clock, I was meeting up with some school friends, um, you know, seven or eight guys, Monday night it was. And what I was mentioning before, I'm actually meeting the same guys tomorrow night, so I better be careful. Um, but we, we had a couple of light beers, had a steak, and it was 8 o'clock. Monday night, so we're we're sort of winding things up, and one of the guys was telling a joke down one end of the table. I'm sitting at the other end, and I took a sip of beer, and um, and uh, it was only a second or third light, so light beer, so we weren't you know under the weather or anything like that. And uh, the punchline came as I took the sip of beer, and I started to laugh, but then like we've all done, I started to cough, choke and cough, went down the wrong way, and but it was quite violent and all that sort of thing, and I stopped and kind of got over that and then i couldn't see and all of a sudden this huge i mean it's been described by other stroke 
people that I've met that, that had the same thing. It's like being hit in the back of the head with a baseball bat, which is about what it was. Jeez. And I was sitting there like this trying to get – I just thought I was dizzy and all that sort of thing after jet lag and tired and all that sort of thing. I'm sitting there like that. And luckily, uh, uh, Tony, who used to be first 15 sort of prop back in the school days, and uh, he's a physio, so he had a bit of, you know, he – bit of sort of bedside manner and said are you all right I said no 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 just give me a moment I, no I don't I don't know what's going on and he said and was the key he said do you want us to call an ambulance and I said I somehow said yes anyway the ambulance arrived and you know I was down on the ground they had it you know they put me on the ground and ECGs and all that sort of thing and I'll never forget that as all through this I was completely conscious I knew what was sort of I didn't really know what was going on but I could talk um, or even though I couldn't see and this huge pain, et cetera. And um, I remember a young waitress who had been serving us um, came over and sort of squealed and, you know, oh, my God, what's going on here? And one of my mates is coming tomorrow night. He actually, he said, oh, don't worry, love, we think it was the steak. And I started <laughs> to laugh. And, and, the, and the, you know, the ambulance guys are going, don't, don't move, don't move, because unbeknownst to me, um, I'd split the back right artery here and the back of my head here, and um, that was boom. Anyway, I got to hospital, ICU, and I thought it was, you know, they'd give me, you know, they'd say, yes, you've overdone it, you're tired, you're jet-lagged, you know, bang, you just here's a few tablets, go home and have a good long sleep. But then the doctors came in and looked pretty grave and gra- gravely at me and said, we, you've had a stroke, we're going to have to, operate and operation means sort of take the back of your head off and oh, and, and release all the all the swelling because the swelling so much it's putting pressure on the skull but also most importantly it's putting it's getting dangerously close when they you know 0.000 of a millimeter close to your um spinal column and once it hits that that's the end of it so we're going to have to operate and I thought, oh, my God, brain, you know, brain surgery. My God, that is, this is serious. So that's when it all sort of went, oh, boy. Anyway, long story short, um, about a couple of hours, well, it seemed like a couple of hours later, they came in and I said, right, I've sort of I've prepared myself. I'm ready to go. And they said, no, we're not going to operate because you're functioning too well and we don't understand how you're doing that, but you're talking to us and you know what's going on and you've got all your movement and stuff and we don't know what's why, but... Um, we're going to do it another way, which basically tried over three days to dehydrate me and, and take the swelling down that way. Um, so the next three days was pretty tough, but lo and behold, almost three and a half days through, um, it started to work and I started to um, not get better, but it started, you know, the swelling had started to go down as opposed to going the other way. So, and during that period of time, they'd wake me every, they started off every 15 minutes, but bear in mind, I'm jet lagged and everything else and had this. And, and then it went out to a half an hour because just to see if my, you know, things had changed because they, if, if they had, they'd take me in and, and operate. So. And then um, the, so the, 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 the road to recovery, how, how long from yeah. that moment, from the, the worst moment where it was really touch and go, were you, would you say you look back and go, you, you got yourself back, back where you, where you are now? How, how long was that? Because you would never trip? know now. You would never know. It's... No, it was, it was quite interesting because once I got out of um, ICU and went up to 
just I had a I was lucky enough to have a room on myself in the, by myself in the ward, and I, I you know I, I I couldn't walk, um, I couldn't see um, very well, um, and you know it was pretty pretty daunting, and um, that sort of um, but it's it sort of that I mean it was quite interesting because it was pretty quick. Um, and that's where I was, you know, the, having the stroke and surviving that, I was just lucky. It was just one of those things. I was really lucky. I had nothing to do with how fit I was or anything like that. It was just pure luck. And that they talk about the wires and when you have this stroke and, that you know, the, the swelling and the blood and all that sort of thing, it depends what wires it hits. And for yeah. some reason, the doctor still can't explain it. I saw it. I was talking to him the other day. I, I rang up while I was here and just sort of said hi and uh, he said, I still don't know how you, you know, you're even here, but we're, wow. you know, and, um, and also just not, it should have been all down my left at the very best. I should have been, you know, walking and talking and sight and all that sort of thing. But there was nothing. The only thing I had was that and I still do is that I lost all my peripheral vision to, to my left. So if I have my hand there, I, I can't see it. I don't like that I can but and then that goes forever so it's just that you know no peripheral vision but I've learned to cope with that and Michael but the, I, this the, was to 2000... answer your question Giles yeah. sorry just to answer your question sorry um I I came out after about oh, two or three weeks which was very quick um and I went to my parents house and it was just a matter of starting to walk um you know first of all it was sort of five minutes and then it was 10 and then it's a lovely walkway in the brisbane river here so i i gradually moved up to you know um after a month or so walking for two hours every morning but i was i'd then come home and go to sleep like for four or five hours and uh because it was it, it took, you know, yeah. and, and as it was, yeah. you know, I'd had a major brain injury and brain injuries are like when you break your leg, you, you, you need to give it rest and, and give it time to recuperate. So I was sleeping a lot, but I had really good physical exercise. And, and then I came home after, I think it was probably about eight weeks or something like that. And then um, once again, it was, it was a bit, I was, I was, I was, you know, it was a bit slow. And I remember that, you know, trying to explain to the kids, you know, when you see a broken arm, you see a broken arm, it's a bone, you know, meant. but trying to explain to them that I, you know, can't see very well on my left and stuff like that. I, I bought sort of pirate patches. So you'd be happy with that, Captain Morgan. I uh, <laughs> um, bought a pirate, pirate patch for each of the kids and I'd put, put it on at dinner and say, so this is a bit like, you know, this is what I have. So it sort of explained to them because they're pretty young explain to them a little bit but the youngest one he still he still does it to this day he comes up on my left here and he knows i can't see him and i say to him nick i can hear you though so um <laughs> but it took me um three years to drive again i'm driving again now nobody wants to drive with me but i'm driving so yeah but there's a lot of coping sort of mechanisms that i put into place as well around not being able to see there and and, and the recovery etc and this happened in 2012, right? Mm. So is this, do you think that the Australian Rugby Union, they, I think we said in the intro to the show, you got inducted into the Australian uh, Hall of Fame for rugby in 2013. Do you think they felt guilty and felt they better get you in there? 
yeah, before before I wasn't here anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's right. well, what an That's oversight! Right. We've left Liner out. We better get him in yeah. before before something bad happens. Go and yeah. so that recovery. What and then my final question on this, and then and Rog will have other mm. questions. But did it? You go through something like that, which is so profound. And our dear friend mm. of the show, and I know probably of you as well, mm. Chris Cairns is going through his own yeah. hell at the moment. Mm. Um, and he's a dear friend of Roger and I and, and, and the show. Mm. When you came out of that and two, three years later, and you're going through your recuperation, did it change much mm. of your, or all of your perspective about how life is? And did, did it, is there something that happened where you realized it was there was a moment there's changed in your life forever, not just the recovery, but how you view the world? Yeah, yeah, there was. And, you know, you hear so much about people saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, it's changed my outlook. I'm going to live every day and all that sort of thing. And I, I sort of honestly thought about that. And to be honest, I don't think it changed too much about, you know, I'm going to live life to the full and not waste any of this. I, I sort of and be grateful for what I've got and all that sort of thing. But when I thought about this after post-stroke, I, I actually was pretty grateful for the life I'd, I'd had up until the stroke. I mean, I didn't take anything for granted. I had a great you know, childhood, a great sporting career, a good job, a lovely family and live in, you know, and live in a nice place, been travelling. So I was actually very much aware of all that. It's, I didn't have to have a stroke to be grateful for all that. Um, but what it, I, I guess in a way, and it was quite difficult afterwards because you'd go through these euphoric periods where, you know, and, and, and it can, it happens, you know, it can be over weeks or it can be over hours where you, you know, this, and you start, you notice in yourself that you start to talk quicker, you start to be excited about stuff. And, but then that euphoric and, you know, you're happy to be alive and you're happy to be here and life's great. And then all of a sudden the, the, the balance of that is you go through these really difficult sort of, de you know, proper depression sort of stages. Um, and I, off I, I knew that that was going on. Um, and, you know, my solution to that was just to try and go and once again, rest and sleep and sort of not sort of try and battle it. And in terms of, you know, taking it out on other people or, you know, being in that bad, depressive sort of mood. and But there, there was a real problem. And, it, you know, sometimes that still happens. Um, but I, t I, t I think I'm a little bit more balanced now. Um, yeah, so there, there, you, you think about all those things, but I, I was grateful before the stroke of what my life was and, you know, et cetera. But I think it was what it tried to, what it did do was just make sure that, you know, um, you know, you just sort of understand your moods and 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 how you behave with people. And did things it affect like that. your golf? Did it affect your golf swing? I mean, genuine genuine question. Coming in from left, yeah. coming in and and coming through. And the it ball? still does. I, I I believe it still does. Um, it not, you know, I couldn't hit the ball. Um, I didn't play for over, you know, gosh, how much was it? About a year and a half or something like that. And you know, I, I think I played when I had my stroke. I think I was about seven or eight handicapped. So. Wow. Um, but then um, I couldn't hit the ball. Um, and I, I came home after, you know, time and I just said to my wife, I said, that's it. I'm not playing golf anymore. It's too frustrating. And yeah. she, she's actually, she actually said to me, you know, she said, no, don't do that. You should be grateful of just being out there and being able to walk around and talk to your friends. Be grateful and keep doing it. 
you should keep doing it. I thought, you know what? She's right. She's right. I should be grateful of being able to play nice golf courses with good friends and that sort of thing. Doesn't matter how well you hit the ball. It's about being out there and experiencing that. And I thought she's right with that. And also, how many wives tell their husbands to keep playing <laughs> golf? So, I was, so, so I've, I've stuck with it. But I, I do still think there's a problem with alignment, or particularly around putting. And those that play play with me regularly never give me a putt because they know I can't see. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> Michael, Michael, you mentioned your, your wife, Isabella. Was she in any way in the, the sport rugby environment when you met or, or, or she wasn't and she just found this strange Australian guy in Treviso. I'm real. I'm just really curious. Yeah, I can ask a, you about CVC. I can, but I, yeah. I'm more interested uh-huh. in this stuff, Michael. No, no, it's a, so that's, that's, a, that's a, another long story, but make it quick. Um, when I went to Treviso, um, Isabella's father, Giuliano, who was, you know, he was best friends with the president of the club, uh, Arrigo Manavello, et cetera. So he always used to come to the games and he was very, um, a, a great rugby supporter. Um, but okay. he, he, you know, like they were very, very friendly people in Treviso and they'd come and say hello and, you know, you must come to dinner. Everybody would say, you must come to dinner. So, you know, if I did that, I'd be a hundred stone. But um, <laughs> they, were, they were so friendly and, and, and now it was quite strange because, Giuliano, this is Isabella's dad's name, and he, he, after most games, he'd come over and say hello. His English was reasonably good, so that helped. Um, and I was still learning Italian at the time. And he said, oh, and by the way, our daughter, Isabella, who went to um, university, I'm uh, sorry, in, uh, senior school in, um, in Florida as an exchange student, um, she said to say hello. And, you know, this happened quite a long time throughout the season. And I started to get this impression of, you know, what, daughter sort of sends her father out to say hello etc you know and anyway <laughs> so I, I just thought oh you know i didn't think much about it and then we played the final in padova and uh and uh we won it was a great game and all that sort of thing it was really you know fantastic moment in my rugby whole rugby career one of the great yeah. moments and we're out in the car park sort of celebrating before we get on the bus to go back to treviso as a team and Juliana and his wife, Daniela, come out and, you know, congratulations, this is fun and I'm enjoying myself. And they, so, oh, by the way, Isabella's here. And I went, oh, no. You know, I never <laughs> met. Anyway, she comes over and her English is perfect and, you know, the lovely looking blonde girl and she, she talks to me and all that sort of thing. And I said to Juliana, I said, this is Isabella. And he goes, yeah. I said, why didn't you tell me? You know, he said, I've been telling you all season. You know, And um, it was quite... Um, surreal really and and then we were going with you know all the supporters to a lovely restaurant benetton family and all that sort of thing and i said to her you know look before i left and um uh, i said look we're going out to um this restaurant she i told her where it was out in the country a little bit and would you like to come she said well my parents are going to to that i'll see a little bit known to me she she was at the great game with her boyfriend and they'd had a big <gasps> fight and he left without her and left her there. And that's why she met me. Anyway, she came to the dinner and she said, oh, you know, we, we chatted all night and chatted away. And then she said, oh, I've got to go with my parents. And I said, well, listen, I'm having, I was going to Australia on Sunday night after the final, so the next night. But I was having a going away barbecue at, uh, at one of the supporters' um, places and 
I said, why don't you come to the barbecue tomorrow? And, you know, and she said, yeah, my parents are going to that one as well. So she came <laughs> along to that and chatted away. And then I, I literally left. I, I went to the airport and I said, well, nice to meet you. And off I left. And it was interesting. Back then, um, I, I sort of thought there was something there, you know, there was something that clicked. Anyway, we wrote letters, believe it or not, letters. Remember those? And, <laughs> Me too. Um, That's my story as well. While I was away and uh, I decided to go back. A because I I enjoy they invited me but B I loved the experience and the the final and the town and all that sort of thing but deep down I thought there was there was something there you know I'd, I'd like to you know see Isabella again so um, I ended up go, going back the next season and by that time she jettisoned the old boyfriend and um, that left her at the ground and made a big error um, and um, <laughs> We got together the following year, and, and I've been paying the price ever since. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's, we, he, we, he obviously literally. Um, sorry, um, last uh, when was it? July. We were in Treviso um, as a holiday with a family, and it was our twenty fifth wedding anniversary. And um, um, yeah, so that was it. Was quite quite you know twenty five years now we've been together and uh, married. So yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thank and of you. course, he left, he left uh, Michael because he was fed up hearing her compliment the blonde <laughs> guy in the middle of the field. And like, he probably saw the writing on the wall and cut his losses because yeah. like... Well, like, 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 like we all go bloody Aussies, right? That's what it would be. Yeah. <laughs> There's two other quick ones there quickly. So the, the first one was the first time she ever saw me um, she was at home and her father was watching the Ireland v Australia game at Lansdowne Road in the World Cup. And he said, see that bloke that just scored the try to win that game? That's the guy that's coming to visa. And she said, ah, he looks nice. I'll, I'll have, you know, invite him over for dinner to, so I can speak <laughs> English to him. And so that was it. <laughs> um, anyway. Well, you know oh, what? Well, well, there, there was another one, that, but I'm probably short of time, so we'll forget about it. Well, do you know those those stories about uh, about that? As, as as Rod says, much more interesting about private equity. Oh, much more. Where much where more. private equity is <laughs> going? Uh, we'll, we'll ask you that on 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 the next time you come on the show. We hope you sure. will in the future, because sure. I think yeah, where where where, where rugby is going is is fascinating, and it's so interesting. We've talked about rugby a lot mm. on that, and particularly American finance trying to get its head around rugby union, of which some mm. they get very right and some things they just don't understand the nuance. So we'll do that. We must let you go. We know you've got meetings and so on and brilliant to have you on the show. It would be remiss of me um, as this show goes out very shortly um, for us not to pay our respects and your thoughts for mm. the passing of Simon Greenberg, who was uh, a, yes. a worker with you, a colleague of yours for, for many years and a friend mm. to so many in the sports industry, had a very illustrious career. And I just mm. thought you might want to pass on your thoughts of, of, of that sad news. Yeah, it was very sad that Simon passed away after a, 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 a very short illness and, you know, leaves a leaves a family, young family and a lot of uh, friends um, both here and around the world and was very well liked. And one of, one of those sort of people, as soon as you meet him, it's just his enthusiasm and he's, you know, a very bright and but great company as well. And very sad, Giles, that he passed away. And, uh, you know, my thoughts of course, go to him, to his family and friends and what have you. And also, you know, you mentioned Chris Cairns there as well. I was a bit shocked about that as well. So I, I think he is here in Australia down in Canberra, I think. So, you know, once again, yeah, thoughts and goes out to him as well and his family. Thank you, Michael. W wonderful words, which we echo. Mm.
I met Simon a couple of times and mm. very talented and charming man. Tragic mm. for, for the young family. Uh, Michael, thank you for your time. I, I can honestly say I, I utterly enjoyed that. Mm. Um, the way that you shared uh, the personal side of, of the stories is just such a gift to us. So thank you very, very much. Um, yeah, thanks, really Roger. appreciate it. And uh, always consider yourself welcome on this show whenever you feel you want oh, to have a chat you. with old friends. No, thank you very much, Roger. And thank you, Giles. And um, yeah, I mean, we only, you know, brush the surface tonight but we, we can do parts two and three as well but um no i really enjoyed it guys Th thank you very much and you know private equity and all that's just a that's a whole episode in itself absolutely yes. lovely to chat bye-bye thank Thanks you Michael. very much bye -bye. guys thank you all the best bye-bye now bye-bye well that was amazing giles you said it would be such a warm conversation and uh honestly that that was just that was just a, a real treat, you know, quite an honour to have somebody of that calibre talk to you in, in that way. Um, I know he's your mate, that's the first time I've met him, but I was just so impressive, Giles. Well, it's funny, isn't it, how um, there are some people, you have a relationship with with sports people sometimes because only of what you know on, this, on, on the screen, or, or, on, or when you watch them play. And he was always such a composed, calm player, a gentleman of rugby yes. whilst always knocking over points. His 911 points remained a, a world rugby cup, you know, for the World Cup, was a, yep. held for years. And yet when I first got to know him, gosh, now 20, 25 years ago, but, you know, sometimes you meet your heroes and, and the people you admire and, and what you meet isn't what you thought you were going to get. I think with, with Michael, you get more. He is the yes. most considered, thoughtful gentle person um who had steel and that steel really came through i think actually as he was telling the story about the stroke and how he got yes. got himself back is that's where you see the inner grit and i remember it because i then watched a few i remember that happening and there are some tapes of him playing he he's not a big man and fly halves often get targeted for for treatment yeah quite clearly and he took a lot and he would always just get back on his feet and get on with it. And that's how he's shown his life. And it's he's a proper ambassador for, for Rugby Union, yeah. of course, but also for his country. And um, as you say, what a privilege for us to have him on the show. And uh, we've got Sean Fitzpatrick coming as well to give us the Kiwi version. So God help us. Yeah, well, <laughs> we can't say that we don't have big names. Thanks to you, Giles, on the show. So thank you for organising that with Michael. Uh, best of his luck to his two, to his two sons. And, and hopefully we do get a chance to do this again. So um, we'll wrap this up now. Remember, everybody, if you like the show, to rate it and review it. Obviously, if you're not already following us, do that uh, on Twitter and uh, entertained R. That's the word R. You can follow Giles on no, at Giles Morgan seventy one, and you can follow myself at RPM Como as in the lake. So Giles, thank you for, again for doing that, setting that up, and it was lovely to see you after your holiday. And uh, to the next time, cheers. Until the next time, Roger. Bye. Excellent.